We want to thank you for following the Looking Forward Our Way podcast. Do you know we also have a newsletter? Our goal with the newsletter is to never waste your time or fill your inbox with email landfill. Each newsletter is quick and easy to read, and it keeps you updated on what we're working on as well as what's coming up in the next episode of the podcast. You'll see some newsletter items come and go, but we will always be respectful of your time and inbox clutter. And we always encourage recycling. So please send the newsletter along to a friend or family member. Sign up by clicking on the link in the show notes or go to our website, lookingforwardourway.com. Thanks again for following and listening to Looking Forward Our Way. I also think, you know, people often go into addiction because they've been touched by it in some way. And so, you know, given that it's so prevalent in our community, I think those that are going to med school have, are coming with a more of an awareness and a sensitivity to how we treat those patients. So even if they don't go into addiction, hopefully we're starting to develop a mindset that this is a chronic medical condition and not a flaw of these people that we're taking care of. Right. Um, and so I hope that that stigma and and quite honestly, discrimination against some of the patients we care for starts to go away as well. We are looking forward our way from Studio C in the 511 Studios. This is Brett. With me, as always, is Carol. How are you? You know, Brett, I am doing really well. And that is our conversation for today. (laughs) We are going to focus on how well people are doing during the pandemic. And we have a very special guest. Please welcome Dr. Chrisanna Deppen, who is a physician with Ohio Health with specialties in addiction medicine and family medicine. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Well, your specialties and certifications include both addiction medicine and family medicine. Let's start off by giving our listeners an overview of your background and how you began a practice that includes issues with treatment and substance use disorders. So I was actually lucky enough to be exposed to addiction medicine when I was in medical school. Um, And I had I was involved in a group that would do interventions for our outside of administration for any um, medical students who are struggling with alcohol or drugs. We really didn't have to do that very often. So we did a lot of education. So I was really aware of the issue as I started my residency in family medicine, uh, which I did at Grant Medical Center just down the street. Um, During that time, we took care of lots of patients in the hospital who had co-occurring substance use disorder. Um, In particular, I developed a passion around caring for pregnant women with substance use disorder. Um, And it felt like we our treatment plan was stop using drugs or stop using drugs will take away your baby. And it seemed like we could do better. And Mm. so I did training in um, Seattle. I did a fellowship in addiction medicine and then came back to Columbus to, you know, try to do a little better in our offering of treatment to um, our folks who have uh, and are struggling with drugs and alcohol. Wonderful. You know, that looks like your patients um, had, they had you at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. walking into that topic, because that's not normally something that, that a, a new medical student would be looking at. Yeah. And un- honestly, we still are struggling with the fact that addiction isn't really covered as as much as it should be in medical training, whether that's for nurses or physicians. So um, I think I was lucky enough to have that exposure going in um, so that I was aware of that and it really just sort of fell into this work and, and love what I'm doing. Mm. Wonderful. Okay. Mm. Mm. Well, there have been so much in the news and the media about issues um, during the pandemic, you know, not just 
for people who are getting COVID and all of those medical issues, but just um, how people are reacting. And um, maybe it's because I have older relatives who are really struggling, but it just seems like they've been under siege, that they have been most vulnerable um, health-wise because of the virus, but also if they're in a residential facility or even really at home, um, the, the the facilities were hotbeds for the mm-hmm. virus, but even at home, they're alone. They're locked down in, in these prisons. Um, I have my aunt who keeps telling me every day, I'm in a prison, you know, and you, what, what are you going to do? What can you do? But um, for those of us, family and friends, we've really not been able to interact with them and really deal with um, the the issues that they're they're having. What are the symptoms that you've seen? What have you observed during this crisis? And you know, how does it differ by age? Yeah, so I think you know we're seeing a lot of the same issues across the age groups as well, right? Um, there was um, an article published with the Kaiser Family Foundation that was looking at anxiety, depression, and substance use disorder. Um, in 2020 20 and 2021 compared to the years prior to that, we see we saw a huge increase in people who reported anxiety and depressive symptoms. Um, and that was true in the older age groups as well, though um, it was pretty similar across the board as it relates to age. Um, and maybe a little more even in the younger population, but I think in the 50 and older groups, um, we were seeing a doubling um, or more of what we would see in a sort of typical year. So about, you know, about one in 10 people would report anxiety and depressive symptoms. And right now it's about four in 10. So um, it's significantly higher. And I think we've seen that also to be true, um, though I think the numbers are still coming in as it relates to problematic um, alcohol and drug use. Um, And in particular, in that article, they talked about um, substance use disorder in our frontline workers um, has gone up um, quite a bit. And that's, I think, not surprising from a standpoint of just finding ways to cope when you don't have that social network. So again, I think we see the same thing in in most of the the age groups, um, but definitely in those who are isolated and Mm -hmm. older and uh, really afraid to leave their house for fear of getting COVID with the co-occurring, you know, issues they may have age and otherwise. Okay. Yeah. We started talking about covering this topic a while back and it didn't really dawn on me that you really don't hear a lot about older adults and depression that covered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I don't know why. Maybe the, the it's just not as a tragic stories. You know, the, you, know you hear yeah. the tragic stories of younger adults and, mm-hmm. and what goes on and such too. But, you know, they are marginalized, ignored for the most part, those stories. Um, and, and also with treatment options, many patients are burdened by long-term substance use disorder as well as loneliness there's a lot to unpack with this mm-hmm. that we almost called in our questions where we're going over some stuff. Is it a perfect storm? I mean, can you help us understand the situation a bit more clearly? Yeah, I think uh, – I mean, I think it is does feel like the perfect storm for our, I think, older patients, a lot of our younger patients as well who are struggling with addiction, mental health problems. Um, but I think in that older population too, we've done a pretty poor job. Um, you mentioned depression, like we aren't great at identifying that in the older population and we're even less great at identifying substance use disorder. Um, We can see an overlap of those symptoms and so sometimes it can be misconstrued. And then I think with this, the inability to be able to 
socialize and that loneliness, not only it does that lead to more problems around the anxiety, depression, potentially substance use disorder, but also like there's no one there to check in on people and and notice, hey, right. what's going on and how can we intervene and and get you the help that you need. Um, so I think those are all parts of what's going on right now for for our patient for my patients, for our community. Yeah, I could see a lot of that being chalked up to now well, they're just getting older. You know, mm-hmm. pieces of well, it's dementia. You know, I mean, yeah, I could you know, t- lots of misdiagnosis to oh. a certain degree. Or just wave it off. You yeah. know, it's, oh, she's just that's she's eighty. You know, absolutely, and right. that's that's wrong. <laughs> well, and and I've noticed that as I said, I'm dealing with friends and family who are much older and living in um, a residential facility. Um, whenever they make a mistake. It may or may not be Alzheimer's, but we're making that assumption because they're older when in actuality it's just because they've been by themselves right. and with no one to interact with other than the same folks who work in that facility. Right. Right. Mm. And I do think not having that social interaction, you know, if they if somebody does have substance use disorder, depression, or dementia, just sort of adds on to that, right? So if you're not having that interaction and you're already prone to like memory lapses, you're not going to have somebody there to right. kind of keep your brain young and and you know inter- interact with so that you right. can do better. You know, when Brett, when you were saying that things aren't reported, um, my next question is going to be about opioid abuse. Mm-hmm. But I'm just wondering is you know opioid hit the newspapers because it was sort of um, the thing to talk about where – And it with, was nuanced with a lot of pharmaceutical behind it as well. well I mean, yeah, a lot of a money. Lot, a yeah, lot of money right. behind it, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering if if part of this – the issues that we're not seeing the problems is because it's not the place to uh, – we're not seeing it in the media because they're not going to get any ratings out of this. <laughs> yeah. You know, nobody's going to really care. So anyway, but – so on to my question – you know, opioids have been all over the news, and it's sort of the first thing when we think about addictions. And Columbus mm-hmm. is just huge in this in this problem, but alcohol addiction also is huge for mm-hmm. older adults because we've had twenty, thirty, forty years of social drinking, and and it's been okay. Um, do we, with the quarantining, uh, do we have? more that we can do or that we should say to older adults and help them so that they are not going down that rabbit hole literally of too much drinking? Yeah, I mean I think it I think it depends on your relationship with that individual. Um I do think that but like you mentioned with opiates and with alcohol, you know, we have seen an increase in our community around opioid overdose deaths during COVID. Right. So social isolation and economic downturn are not good for addiction. Um, so when we look at those statistics, you know, in May of the year prior to like May of like May in 2019 and, and back, like or that year, um, we saw about for about every 10 people who died from overdose, we in the year of 2020, we saw about 14 people dying. Um, and so that's a huge increase in the overdose deaths where we were starting to see a trend down. COVID kind of switched that around. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right, you know, with kind of what gets put in the news, opioids made the front page a lot from the overdose deaths, which are obviously tragic. But we see in our community there's actually more deaths and complications from alcohol use disorder than from opiates. So it's a huge problem. 
um, especially in the aging population where, you know, drinking has just been a normal part of life. Right. And as we age, things change, right? Our bodies change, just the way we metabolize alcohol or medications that's different than when we were oh younger. Gosh. So we may be drinking, you know, we, a loved one may be drinking one way from, you know, from their 30s onward. But when they reach that older, you know, getting into their 60s, 70s, 80s, their body's not going to metabolize that the same. And so the impact from that drinking is going to be more significant. Right. And so even that sort of, quote, normal drinking may no longer be healthy drinking um, for that individual. And and their food eating their their food patterns are different too particularly in the middle of this pandemic some of them haven't really they can't get to the grocery store as often they may not be cooking for themselves as much yeah that kind of thing absolutely and i mean and you know we're talking about you know people who have access to food people who don't certainly you know as with you know job losses i mean people are eating less for lots of different reasons and so drinking becomes even more dangerous when you're you're not eating the same way you used to and are otherwise not able Good. to be healthy. Oh, interesting. So okay. um, I think I think from a standpoint of like, you know, checking in on our loved ones, I think it's it is that just checking in. Um, uh, as we were talking before, that sort of overlap of dementia, depression, substance use disorder, a lot of those symptoms are the same. So I think paying attention to is something different. Is my loved one depressed or anxious? Um, are they having memory lapses? Mm-hmm. You know, um, are they having falls? You know, those aren't always just related to tripping over the, you know, it's not a f- always physical weakness, but like, you know, did, were they drinking or were there other things involved in that? Um, so following up on that. And then I think just having conversations with, you know, the people we care about, it, you know, when concerns come up. Sure. Well, we've, you know, established that those numbers are a lot higher uh, over the past, if nothing else, two years that have been measured, at least that we mm-hmm. know. What's changed in substance use disorder therapies in the recent years? I mean, have you witnessed or heard of mm-hmm. successful therapeutic programs to, to fight the conditions or, or how are we, you know, Absolutely. making things change to, mm-hmm. to uh, compensate for all this upsurge? Right. So I think, you know, there is treatment and I think that's important for people to know. Like people do get better. I think we sometimes forget that based on TV shows and things we see that are often quite tragic, but people can recover. Um, I think, you know, maybe kind of from a treatment perspective, kind of putting that into maybe three buckets. I think one, um, those of us in addiction medicine have really, um, uh, really appreciated the sort of level, like the uh, meeting patients with the appropriate level of treatment. I think you know, if you watch the movies, everyone goes to 28 days of rehab and and that's still a thing people do but like we don't cure addiction in 28 days and so it's really important to recognize that like 28 days might be necessary for some people but it doesn't end after 28 days the other thing is not everybody needs to go to 28 day treatment right there's plenty of treatment that happens you know in the community that people live in outpatient you know from their home um or you know they're going to a counselor getting involved in support and so i think just making sure that the patients get to the right level of care that they need um, the other piece is that we have medications to help with substance use disorders. So both opiates and alcohol, um, only about uh, one in 20 people who have alcohol use disorder ever get offered a medication to help with that. And we've had these medications for years and they can be, while they are not a cure-all, they can be an ac- a, a good part of helping somebody to recover um, by offering those medications. So I think making sure people are um, who are struggling at least are able to have that conversation about are medications a part of your treatment plan. And then I think just generally, I think social support. So, you know, we uh, 
you know, Alcoholics Anonymous or, you know, church groups or other pieces where um, individuals feel connected um, can be a part of somebody's treatment plan. So I think there's a sort of formal treatment and then that sort of informal um, support of those that are in in recovery and treatment. I, I, I This question's a little, maybe a little off topic a bit. When you're looking at those treatment programs, a lot of what has happened in medicine through COVID, we've really had to pivot mm-hmm. and and look at different technologies, look at different ways like telehealth. Absolutely. Have you have you seen any of those? Um, because I'm thinking, if somebody's not in treatment, they have to get to treatment on a regular basis, and that transportation issue could be huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that if that's like, I guess, a, a benefit of COVID is I think it ramped up the the speed with which we do a lot more by virtual health, right? Okay. So video visits, um, uh, there's also group visits to get, you know, people can do um, as it relates to their treatment and recovery. Um, uh, the other the other pieces is just like, I think technology. Also, we have like apps that can help support someone's recovery, Um that have education um, or incentives through sort of like app-based technology. So I think there's lots of ways in which those pieces can be helpful during COVID, but even outside of COVID. And hopefully as we turn the corner and come out of COVID, some of those pieces stick around so that people have better access to care no matter where they live or what transportation needs they have. Right, right. Going back a little bit to um, the when we were talking about what to look for, one thing I've noticed with the folks that I'm trying to help to support is that um, their decision making is more complicated. Mm-hmm. I, in some ways, it's almost like they're really feeling unable to make a decision, and I think it's because of the unknown. You know, what's COVID? What's the pandemic going to do? What are the what's the nursing facility going to tell me I have to do next? That kind of thing. Um, But uh, they are much more frustrated, much more easily. Mm -hmm. So when you're thinking about trying to watch them and all you're seeing until, you know, it looks like maybe the the, um, facilities are opening up now. But for the last year, we've been able we haven't touched them. We can only see them through a window or see them through Zoom. What are the other kind of specific things we should really watch for? You had mentioned a couple. Yeah. I mean, I think kind of going back to those same things, I think that kind of that confusion, the um, I think sometimes even like just um, behavior changes. So maybe somebody who's more hostile or um, that mm-hmm. maybe hadn't been in the past. And again, these all can overlap with with depression, with um, potentially dementia. But I think those should just at least be a sign to say, like, we need to do something more. Um, Again, they're, you know, stating depression or anxiety. I think changes in sleep, either sleeping a lot more or sleeping not much at all. Mm -hmm. Um, You mentioned, like, just getting food. But if their appetites have changed, in particular, they're eating less. Like, they have access to food, but they're not hungry. They're not eating. I think those would be pieces that – in especially older population would be watching for to see, right. you know, is something else going on? Again, maybe it's substances, maybe it's de- depression or dementia. Um, but, but those would be some of the triggers that I would say, let's let's look into this a little bit more. Right. Because it, it really literally, as soon as we get them out of their houses, they may be fine. Yeah. But we but that doesn't mean that we should ignore their frustration and their anger and, and that kind of thing. So good. Yeah. Okay. And I also think it's hard because, I mean, I think um, 
you described me on many hard days when you know you can't do all the things you want to do. Really? I mean, yeah. it's, I think there's also some like it's also normal to be frustrated and angry during COVID. Oh gosh, oh, yeah. yes, uh, we're, sure. we're we're actually all going through all of these same things, and, right? But but I think we've all really honed in on our older population just because they are so confined. Right. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. I wanted to ask a little bit more about that social support. And what triggered in my mind was the Alzheimer's discussion in regards to most of us are walking into a situation with who we're looking after Mm -hmm. in a situation we are not comfortable with or we don't know how to handle. Mm -hmm. Um, What are some tips that you would come to come to mind in regards to handle this situation? Okay, we recognized that something's going on, but what do we do next? Because a lot of us may, again, have never encountered this and it's going to make us very uncomfortable. And our first inclination would be probably not to go see them as often, maybe because we just don't know how to deal with this situation. How do we overcome that? Where, you know, obviously there's help Mm -hmm. groups to help, but until we get there, what are some, what's some piece of advice? Yeah. I mean, I think kind of like maybe twofold, just thinking about like, Anyone who's struggling with substance use disorder, mm-hmm. regardless of age, I think the important thing is to talk to them about it yeah. um, and also to not um, – so to be open to meeting that person where they're at, right? Because nobody is going to – that's not – that conversation usually doesn't go well the first time. I was just going to say um, that first one's always the hardest yeah. no matter what it is, financial, whatever. But now we're dealing with somebody yeah. that's, that you're you're almost accusing – right? not accusing, but you're, you're, you're definitely flaying away a flaw that is like – you're depressed. It's like, no, I'm not. You know, that's sort of thing. Yeah. And, and you know, it's going to be a difficult first And I think, you know, sometimes, um, you know, even when I'm talking with like the young doctors that I'm training is that, um, you know, when you see a problem in a patient, sometimes it's not getting to the point of like, it's lovely for us in addiction medicine to get to the point where the person's like, Hi, I'm Chrisanne. I'm an alcoholic. And we're like, whoo, I can help you. Right. But, <laughs> right, but right. usually that's not actually what happens in that first right. conversation. But if we can get to the point where, that person says, "Hey, I something's not working right, right? If you can just that's to me, that's a magic moment. Like I need to do something different. We don't have to call it alcoholism. We don't have to call it addiction. We just need to get to a point where everyone sort of like where there's some acknowledgement of like let's let me try something different, mm-hmm. right? And and so I think avoiding like the language, maybe language that would feel sort of like judgmental to that other person, and just sit, pointing out like the things that you're noticing and like." Of just you know being curious about like what are you noticing and like what can we do to help you feel better or not you know what can we help you can we do to help you you know sleep better at night or whatever those things are that had come up for that person mm-hmm. and then I think just trying to be um, patient um, in that setting because a lot of times we're we're planting a seed and it may take a little bit of time to grow but to to not back off and still be a support person for that individual as much as you can from um, your own personal health perspective. And then I think the other, the challenge that I don't deal with as much because most of my population is a bit younger is just that fact of like, are we in a place where that person's not safe, especially as they're aging? Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, I think that probably gets into other conversations maybe you've had with others is like, when do we need to think about like a different environment or getting, you know, getting someone else involved from a perspective of safety? Um, if that person isn't able to make choices at that right. point, sure. Because um, I've heard scenarios that in in assisted play, in assisted living and in independent living and such, I mean, senior bullying happens. Sure, which sure. amazed me when I, I was 
helping a, a client of mine record an episode about that. And it's like, wow, you, yeah. you'd have thought we'd have grown out of that. It's like, no, it turns back into that because of protecting territory, protecting things. And, and you're in this close environment kind of think about what was going on in high school the same situation you know everybody's kind of yeah in the olden days before <laughs> pre-covid but you know that senior bullying happens and can lead to loneliness depression right. alcoholism very well, and, easily yeah and and i think too what's it as hard as it is that we have to address it because i've tried addressing it to the administrators of those facilities Mm -hmm. and got nowhere because either the one person I'm sort of watching over is in independent living. So of course, you know, those folks say, Oh, they're independent. We can't do anything, you know, and you're like, seriously, you know, you make them live by your rules that Mm -hmm. are, that are attached to the assisted living. But when they're having an issue, you won't deal with it, which sort of drives me a little crazy. And then my aunt, who's, you know, in assisted living, and those folks are just bombarded with stuff. They can't get to everything that needs to be done and fixed and assisted and supported. And so, but it's, I think the hardest, um, you know, my parents are gone, but I think the hardest thing is to go to your parents and talk about issues. Mm -hmm. Um, It is really, really difficult. Right. I I mean, I think it is a difficult issue for sure. Um, I think and we think about like some of the facilities as well. One of the things that we, you know, we know the population is aging. The other thing with the aging population is that the, the I guess the boomer population um, has been, they've been uh, more drug aware and less afraid of drugs and alcohol for their most of their lives. Sure, and, sure, and just like sure. things like bullying or things that are, where they did when they were younger, they don't just go away when you move into assisted living mm-hmm. or, you know, independent right, living. I mean, right. those things we anticipate will become more of a problem. And so I think facilities need to be preparing, like, what does this, like, what will we do when, you know, our patient or the clients that live here have right issues around alcohol and drugs and how will that get managed because it, it is going to continue to be a growing problem right in those mm-hmm. settings yeah I, I like your notion though of saying just have a conversation with them mm-hmm. um been trying to do that now for the, the past month and it's yeah you and and just to be patient because they their answer is not going to be what you want to hear yeah and i think we think about this um in our younger sort of opiate use disorder patients, we think about the idea of harm reduction. And in those settings, we think about things like needle exchange. And, you know, if you're going to use, let's make sure you're using safely and those types of things. But I think we could probably think about harm reduction in our older population too. Like, okay, if they're going to drink, is this environment safe? Like, can we make sure that there's things that they're not going to trip over? Um, You know, it might be a different way to look at that. But I think there's sort of a spectrum of like this person's ready for help versus, okay, they're not at all even really willing to have a conversation. What can we do around that to keep this individual safe as, you know, until they hopefully get to a place where they want a bit more help or are willing to do something differently? So really taking it in steps, kind of taking one little tiny issue at a time, Mm -hmm. trying to move that forward. And it's not really something that we can necessarily plan because you don't know when you take this step where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. All right. It's a good plan. Okay. We've often talked about the value of working into our later years, whether it's full or part time or heck, even it's just volunteering. We talked about a lot about that or just getting to social activities. 
Uh, the theory is to remain engaged, keep our brain thinking, learning, and expanding. Like you mentioned earlier, keeping your, your brain young, um, which could lead to a healthier lifestyle and increased years. Has that proven true in recent studies for those who are battling substance use disorders? And if so, do you have suggestions on how to tempt seniors to move around outside of their world and engage more? So, I mean, most of what I would say would probably not be like evidence based, though. I think um, I think we do know from like a substance use disorder standpoint that that social connection, people do better when they have that social connection, um, whatever that looks like. It could be again, it could be family. It could be um, 12 step or mutual support groups. Um, And I think. You know, I think about like technology, you know, my, my grand, my grandma is 95 and she, you know, doesn't always do it well, but she can zoom with me and FaceTime, you know? And so I do think while, um, you know, people may, you know, COVID or not, not always be comfortable, like leaving their home or be able to, Mm -hmm. I think technology could be a way to help bring people together in some different capacities. And I love the idea of like, you know, volunteering and, um, you know, kind of, giving your your time i think is also doing meaningful work is helpful for you know that loneliness part of um you know that whatever mm-hmm. part loneliness plays in depression or um some substance use disorder i think that's really important so um i was lis- i was listening to another podcast and they <laughs> talked about um like a program called Eldera where they like connect um older older folks who might be retired with like uh kids who need like homework assistance Aww. um virtually nice. and so i was just like but, you know, if, if somebody is like, you know, I could just like my grandparents are my other grandparents are no longer alive, but they were teachers in their younger years. And I think, gosh, if they were alive, I bet they would really enjoy like helping like a young person with math or you yeah. know reading or things like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Because right. I've heard programs the reverse as well that are high school students creating yeah. programs to outreach to yeah. just kind of adopt a grandparent sort of feel right. to it. And, and it's becoming state by state. They, they're yeah. reaching so I think things way. like so that seem like seem like a really interesting um, way to kind of yeah. to support both. Right. Like especially right now with still hopefully we'll get back to all in-person school. But with like virtual school, like mm-hmm. I'm sure parents would love to have an oh. adopt a grandparent to yeah. help with schoolwork for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> even even the new math crap, you know, <laughs> I'm sure, you know, a 70, 80 year old teacher oh, would yeah. love yeah. to teach again because it's more of pulling it out of the student versus teaching the student a really good teacher yeah. is so oh, you know absolutely. you know that so it's one of those like, just to get get them invigorated to help right. help and and make them feel young because they're you know working with a 16 15 year old or 12 year old whoever it might mm-hmm. be it just just that atmosphere makes people feel young well, particularly if they haven't had a lot of family time mm-hmm. um and they're missing their own grandchildren right. so that absolutely. that fills that gap yeah absolutely yeah so we've talked sort of a at where are we right now? Mm-hmm. Let's think about what we're going to do in the future. Do you see differences in treatment options that are going to come along now with with COVID hopefully ending? Um, are there other things that we've got to be watching for? And you're training new new doctors in this area. What are you looking at in that training? And um, is it hard to get new doctors to look at? addiction issues as their specialty? Yeah, lots of questions. So future thinking. Um, I think in the treatment area, I think some of, again, some of what happened during COVID is actually probably helpful, right? Mm -hmm. Us realizing that we can reach patients. um, We don't have to force patients to come to our office to take care of them. Um, So I think that's really helpful and will be, um, 
I don't think it should be the only way we care for um, patients, but I think it, it definitely can enhance um, our patient rela- uh, provider relationships. Um, I, you know, as far as like future treatments, I don't know exactly, you know, what's on the horizon or what might come. But I do think kind of as we think about the older population and the likely increasing risk of substance use disorder in that population, it's an it's a group that addiction medicine treatment isn't really ready for across the country, right? So um, we we need a lot of things to change to be able to support that care. So if somebody needed to go to a residential program for addiction and they're you know, in their 70s, and they they might have a lot more needs than somebody who's in their 30s, right? They they have lots of other medications, you know, they may, you know, need, it's a different environment. So I think getting our treatment facilities ready to care for that population and also then getting our, like, payers to mm-hmm. really also pay for that service. Um, Medicare hasn't been known as being a very good payer in the space of substance use disorder treatment. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of advocacy around that as well to improve that. So I think hopefully in future state, given given even given COVID, that we know that these numbers are likely to rise during this period and our aging population, those issues will have to be addressed. And so I think that's um, – I hope that that's an area where we improve. Because they're not just going to disappear. Absolutely I not. I mean, COVID yeah. isn't going to disappear and neither are, are these issues. Right. And I think I think like what COVID did for lots of things, it made some issues we already had just much more obvious. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. the area of like caring for the older population um, and substance use disorder, it, it became clear that we're just not doing it enough. Um, and then I think, you know, I have a lot of hope in like training new young doctors, maybe not all young, older doctors can come into addiction medicine as well. Well, that's true. Um, And so I think that um, I I think there's a lot of hope there because um, lots of our younger docs, too, like they really want to go into medicine to help people. And I think Mm -hmm. addiction medicine is an area where you really it's not easy work and it's not it's certainly not happy every day. Um, but when people get better, it's life changing. And I think that's um, really powerful. Um, and so I think there are a lot of there's a lot more interest in addiction than there there has been. I also think, you know, people often go into addiction because they've been touched by it in some way. And so, you know, given that it's so prevalent in our community, I think those that are going to med school have are coming with a more of an awareness and a sensitivity to how we treat those patients. So even if they don't go into addiction, Hopefully, we're starting to develop a mindset that this is a chronic medical condition and not a flaw of these people that we're taking care of. Right. Um, and so I hope that that stigma and, some, and quite honestly, discrimination against some of the patients we care for starts to go away as well. Very good. I mean, that's really all you can ask from your GP is recognize that there's a problem and maybe give some solutions or a, a referral or, or yeah. you know – that's all we can ask. Right. And I would not to get too off track, but the other thing that I would point out is that, you know, we there is so much stigma and discrimination around caring for patients with substance use disorder. And I remember having a patient um, who like thanked me for, you know, treating her like a human. And that is a very low bar. And I think wow. we can do much better than that. And and hopefully we, we are getting there. Um, but I think, you know, nobody wants – themselves or their loved one to not feel seen and cared mm-hmm. for um, in the healthcare system. And so I think that's really important to um, be teaching that to our young, you know, all of our providers, but especially our young um, providers as well. 
Well, we want to remind our audience that um, if you go to our website, there you are going to see resources connected to this podcast. We're going to put lots of information into the show notes. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance, do not hesitate to look for help to find a care uh, healthcare provider or service agency, you know, help is available. And I think that's one of the things we're really learning in our podcast is there are resources in our community. Central Ohio is, um, we are so lucky and so rich with lots of places that people can go to for help. And so we encourage you to our listeners to um, check back and, and see what's going on. And we want to thank you, Dr. Deppin, for joining us yeah. today. This has been wonderful. Thank you, thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Looking Forward Our Way. We'd like to ask a favor from you. Would you give us some feedback on our podcast? We've made it really easy to do so. Click on the link in your episode show notes. That link will take you to our podcast Google My Business page. You may have to sign in to your Google account. From there, we'd appreciate your feedback on the podcast overall, feedback on a specific episode, or a suggestion on what you'd like to see us cover in a future episode. All your feedback is so much appreciated. Your comments only help us create episodes that will keep all of us looking forward our way.